Hey, welcome everyone. Um, we're excited that you're with us here for our table worship service tonight. Uh, my name is Debbie Manning. I'm one of the pastors here at the table and we're just glad that we can all be together even though it's virtually. But speaking of being together, we are going to gather again together in our, the outdoor parking lot right here at Bethlehem Lutheran Church next Sunday night, October 4th. So we would love it if you would go online to the table mpls.com and register just so we can have an idea of how many people are coming and so we can set up in a safe way. Um, and we are just excited. We're excited that we can gather again and see each other and um, spend some time together. The other thing I wanted to mention is that we will be having women at the table this Wednesday night, September 30th. We will be in Julie Idy's backyard. You can get more information on that and register for that. Uh, again, on our website. So we encourage you to do that. The other thing we'd like you to do is to continue to stay connected, get connected if you're not, and you can do that by texting TABLE to 33222. And in that way, you can find out about all the different things we have going. And there's been a lot of shifting and changing some of the things we're doing just with this season of COVID, and so you can keep updated on all of that. Last but not least... We continue to be grateful for the generosity of this community, um, for not only how you pitch in when there's a need, but how you keep um, this church on its feet by your giving. So if you'd like to give and you're not, or continue giving and up that giving, you can go to our website once again and just click on the giving tab. And you can do all of that right there. And again, we are so grateful. With that, I am going to hand it over to Matt for the message tonight. Hey, good evening, friends. My name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the pastors here at the table. And I'm pretty sure we say this every week, but don't mind me if I say it once more. We are so grateful that even through, you know, the suckiness of doing this screen to church, church through screen, you're still here. That means more to us than I think you will ever know because it goes without saying, but this is a hard thing, right? I mean, altogether, this season is a hard time. And so to know that we have good people like you that want to ride it out with us, that are still excited about the days to come, uh, that does something for us. So thank you so much. Um, if you're new to the church experience, this is where we go into a text. We're in a stretch right now where we are being led by the lectionary. And the lectionary this week is leading us to Philippians 2, which is a powerful passage um, not just because I think so, but also because I found out this week that a few other people do too. Hannah and Sarah, they're getting married this Sunday night, and uh, which would be tonight. Um, and I get to be a part of that wedding, and it's going to be beautiful and sacred. And for their central passage to gather and start their marriage upon, they're choosing Philippians too. I didn't tell them to do so. They just they thought that was the best text. Yesterday then... On top of that one, yesterday I was on a conference call with different MBA chaplains and Ernie Johnson of TNT came on the call and he started to share how his life with Christ began when he first was introduced to Philippians 2. He thought it was such a beautiful and expansive vision for what it would look like to be a people committed to the ways of love in a world that tends to run in the opposite direction. And he said, sign me up. I'm interested. I'm in. Let's do this. And so... I mean, genuinely, I'm, I'm really not trying to overhype what Paul puts down in this letter to the church in Philippi, but I just want you to proceed with caution because there's a good chance that when you go into a text like this, you might not come out the same on the other side, which in, in all fairness is kind of 
Paul's aim altogether. I mean, what I love about this Apostle Paul is that there is no such thing for him as abstract theology. There is no spiritual navel-gazing. Every theological pontification comes for Paul with a pragmatic implication attached. In fact, he gets very specific about this at one point in time um, in the passage known as the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, which we might all be blurry about now, given that all of our weddings were canceled because of COVID. But in that text, Paul is harping on and on about like um, the majors that churches tend to major on, being great musicians, having great wisdom, being like intellects, all of these different things. He says, you know, at the end of the day, if you were to break it all down and you're looking for the cream of the crop, the three most important pieces that will undergird your life, if there's three things that I would say you need to prioritize above all else, it is you need to have some faith, you need to have some hope, and you need to have some love. But then he kind of leans over the podium and he whispers to the community, but if there's a deserted island out there and you can only take one of them with you, take love. Love is the point. Love is the aim. For Paul, his greatest criterion of value is love. And, and lovelessness is actually his greatest critique. If, if your faith is bigoted or making you cold, if it is making you more cruel, exclusive, self-righteous, more of a talker than a listener, more concerned about your own personal rights than about actually being right, then then leave that faith for love. Just go on, leave it. You might be looking like you're winning, but if you don't have love, you really didn't win. Nothing has been won. For Paul and the Christian church, the heretics are not those who have disagreements about abstract thoughts, about theology, which are really all of our best guesses anyways. They are those who read this story of the Word becoming flesh and insist on turning the flesh back into Word, insist on turning the Son of Love into a sentence to be observed as opposed to a life to be participated inside of. Paul is trying to get people into this love story. Paul is trying to raise up some lovers in a world so cold. Uh, that's, that's what he's, he's after here. And on this path and in this pursuit, that actually ends up putting him in prison. Um, we don't know exactly where he's doing time, but we think that he is writing this letter to the Philippian church from a prison in Rome where he's been locked up, not because he got caught selling dope on the corner or caught with tax evasion or election fraud. Paul is in prison because he could not keep himself from talking about Jesus. He had to say something about this love that reached him. And so he was thrown behind bars for doing so. And if I may just go on a quick little tangent and say that is not Paul being indicted on just cause. That's actually an indictment on the world as it is. Not the world as it was, the world as it is. I can't help but think of Breonna Taylor when I think about the Apostle Paul, because consider that in a world like ours, you can be thrown into prison for talking about love. But if you have some power to, you can avoid prison even after you take a life. That's, that's where we are in the world right now. That's the condition of, of our society, is that since the get-go, we have been consistently crippled by a sense of inequity that profits the few at the expense of the many. And Paul here in his letter to the Philippians, 
He's in all caps writing saying, don't be like that, be like this instead. And so without further ado, I want to read to you what Paul said to that church because I think it's the same thing that Paul has to say to us today. I'm going to read to you from the message version because I actually just love how Eugene Peterson writes it. He says this, Paul says this, if you have gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't get stuck on the surface. Go deep. Be spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand. Okay. So, essentially, Paul starts off this letter in chapter 2 saying, you know, if water is wet, if fire is hot, if rocks are hard, if, if all these things are true about Jesus, then make them true in us. And then he implores the people to... Uh, be self. Here's what we do, okay? So you're maybe noticing right now, maybe it's for the first time, I'm not in the church sanctuary. I was, though, last night. Last night, I showed up when I was supposed to show up, um, and Christian was there with camera in tow, and, and I stood in front of that camera, and I read this passage, and I started to talk about how you know, things I've kind of already said, but I did it full, for a full sermon length about how love is the ultimate aim and then the embodiment of love and not just the expression of love. Guys, we got to be lovers. But it was like it was like coming out all jumbled and it was coming out all weird. And I couldn't name why, but I was stuttering and stumbling. And we got to the point where it's like, screw it. I'm not doing it here tonight. Christian, I'll figure it out later. When I drove home, I was feeling uh, annoyed angry, depressed, embarrassed. And, and I started to think about like, why was that like such a struggle to talk about last night? Like what, what was it about? What was it? And I realized, I think that part of it for me is you come to a text like this and um, <laughs> you come to a text like this and you hear Paul pushing for us to be you guys be more selfless, okay? And, and, and we need to do this. And as the pastor now, my job is to endorse said push and turn around and go like, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give all of our money to the poor. We're going to um, start new nonprofits. We're going to love each other consistently. We're not going to think about ourselves anymore. We're going to put ourselves to the side and we're going to do these amazing things in the name of love and for King Jesus. And it's going to be beautiful and it's amazing. And I can't wait to dig in and be about it with all you guys because this is what we're going to do. Okay, let's get in each other's corners and lift each other's heavy burdens. But then I'm like, wait a second. No, we're not. Like, that sounds exhausting. It doesn't sound exhilarating. That sounds exhausting. I, I, I can't do that anymore. I can't. We're not actually going to do. I know, like, idealistically, yes, like, let's just be 100% on just others oriented. But are you actually going to do that? Am I actually going to do that? Because here's what will happen instead. I'll watch a sermon like that. I'll watch it with you. I'm watching this right now with you. And then afterwards, I'll turn to my wife and go, so do you think people liked it? And really, I'm saying to her, like, do you think people liked me? Was that good? Huh? Did I win there? 
Did I get what's mine there? It's not about raising up lovers. It's like ensuring that I still am the love. Like I, I just, I think part of the reason why I couldn't pull off the in-church pontifications about love and how we're all supposed to be lovers last night is because I just am a little bit like, I, I can't play that game anymore. Like, I mean, I agree with it. I, I endorse it. But, okay, so let me get pointed here. I think that religion, and honestly, most of what we would dub today as spirituality, it posits the elimination of selfishness as this pathway to personal transformation. Um, I mean, after all, if you read the biblical story, it's our brazen selfishness out of the gates that really upsets God and sends the whole East of Eden thing into motion. So there is this like constant call in religious context to eliminate the selfish parts of you. And I get that because, I mean, if you think about even just our news out there right now, you could basically sum up every news headline with selfish idiots doing selfish things. And then we would click there to get high off of said things. And so the message then in a context like that, in the message that I think I was even trying to give last night is... Um, You guys need to become selfless. You need to get rid of selfishness so that you can stop being bad and you can start being good. We good? But then again, right after I say that to you, I will say to my wife, was that good? Was that awesome, huh? And I asked my wife that question because I think when I'm watching myself talking on that screen, there is another voice that is talking simultaneously. It is the voice underneath the voice that is pushing you to be selfless that's, that's saying, but what if we actually are? Can you imagine all we would lose? Like if we actually took seriously selflessness, like how are you going to make sure that you're, you're taking care of you? Like if, if you are actually taking seriously the idea of being others oriented, then who's going to have your back? What's going to happen if if you give and you don't get in return, you guys think about how terrifying of a thought that is. I understand why that voice shakes and trembles when it speaks, because what will happen if we give and we don't get in return? There's nothing worse. I don't want that. Not interested. I submit to you that there is nothing worse than the idea of giving and not getting. And the longer that that voice beneath the other voice is allowed to linger, it grows in volume. And what happens instead is that I double down on my desire to protect me, even if it comes at the extra- at the expense of extracting something from you. But this is where I have to be careful because I have to be selfish, but I have to appear selfless. I mean, especially as a pastor, I can't look like a tick. I can't look like a taker. I have to give the appearance of, of selflessness. And so um, I need to continue to look out for me, but I need to look like I'm looking out for you. I need to maybe throw out an occasional post that shows that I'm socially conscious. I need to send out a text to show you that I care. I need to do this and do that. I need to be seen as, as somebody who thinks about you so that they don't actually see how obsessed I am with me. And I don't necessarily blame me for that. Because part of me thinks like that's kind of how we're wired to be. And I don't mean that in a gross way, but think about the mechanics of your body, especially in the midst of this pandemic. 
at this very moment, your body is constantly warring against disease. It is managing waste. It is stewarding resources like vitamins, minerals, oxygens. Um, you are currently regenerating and repairing in your limbs, in your organs, in your arms, the 37 trillion cells that are, are all in your body pieced together. Your body is constantly all doing all of this to make sure that you are still here. And that's just the physical side of things. Think about the psychological side of things. Think about the constant unconscious need to make sure that you are safe in a certain scene. The instant risk assessment that happens mentally when you step onto a flight of stairs or when you are climbing up a ladder and there's a kid messing with the ladder from beneath. Think about all the ways that you are constantly taking care of you and making sure that you are safe. But then also think about how you're not just trying to be safe, you're also trying to be sexy. Think about the billions of dollars of industry that are based on a desire to be found physically attractive or bare minimum like somebody that showers every now and then. Do you know how much work goes into that? Do you know how much toil it takes to look like you are coming across as clean? But think about all this, you guys, because when you consider how your body and your brain are this nonstop shop that keeps you up and running, is your thought like man, I am so selfish? Or is your thought like, holy cow, God, how did you create this being to operate in that way that keeps the thing up and running? I I wouldn't be standing here still if I wasn't selfish. Clearly, my selfishness has sustained me. And even more clearly, it was God's idea. And so why am I going to demonize and denounce that which the divine put into me for my own sustainability to be here? You are still here because you are selfish. That was God's idea. You are still here because you are selfish. The problem, however, and what Paul is trying to point at in this letter is that for so many of us, this selfishness doesn't just operate in the background. It becomes an anxiety that overwhelms the foreground. It becomes this delusional belief that sits in the driver's seat that convinces us that surviving moment to moment is who we are. Like thinking that the sole point of buying a guitar is to make sure that it never gets scratched. That's not the point. And you're ruining the song. So do you see the predicament I'm trying to point at? The predicament that I think Paul is consistently trying to get us is that demonizing selfishness doesn't actually cure us of selfishness. It only makes us lie about what we are doing as we continue to behave selfishly. In other words, shaming self-interest forces us to spend even more energy on ourselves in order to polish over the ticky parts of ourselves, the taker parts of ourselves, the self-obsession that is in us. Which, if you think about it, that, that actually just makes us twice the ticks that we were before, because not only are, do we have to hide our ticks, now we have to cover up our tickiness, which is another ticky thing to do. Do you know how exhausting it is to try to make a tick look pretty? Do you know how exhausting it is to make a taker look like he is um, charitable, contributing? And so ultimately, where am I going this? Matt, are you saying that we should just be selfish and accept that about ourselves? No, I'm not necessarily saying that, but I am saying that selfishness in the human being cannot be fully removed. But I do believe that selfishness can be recalibrated. If we try to erase it, we end up with deception masked with altruism, and that's just annoying. We don't want that. That's exhausting. We can't keep that. 
And so let's just bare minimum start by saying that everything we do is a measure of selfishness. And so think about this on a spectrum. If there is too much of me, I become another tick, another taker, another user that sees the world around me as my own personal pharmacy, which is why we're in the mess that we are in in the first place. But on the flip side of that, if I take out all of me, I'm still still a tick. I'm just trying to dress up as a butterfly. I'm exhausted by that. I'm frustrated by that because I don't know how to get rid of something that will never actually leave. And yet I still remain convinced that it should. I don't believe that selfishness fully can or should be removed, but I do believe that we are called to have our selfishness recalibrated. I think Paul was getting at this in other letters of his. In his letter to the Ephesians in particular, Paul at this one point, he says that Let thieves no longer steal. Instead, let them serve others with those hands. You see, if you were to go to religion and you were to ask, what do we do with thieves who take the bread from the market? They would say, cut off those hands. But if you were to go to Christ, Christ would say, take the impulse that is behind that taker and turn it into something good. Take that sword and bend it into a plowshare. Paul is saying this because Jesus first said this. During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus offers up something that sometimes... It makes you wonder why we're doing a 25-minute sermon or why our Bible is so long. Because Jesus says, whatever you wish, this is like his summation statement, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, in order to fulfill that law, hear exactly what he is saying. He is saying that your awareness of what you want, your awareness of your selfishness is a prerequisite in order to fulfill the law of the prophets, to fulfill the call of Christ, to actually love your neighbor. If you're a note taker, write this one down. I honestly am coming to believe more and more that the Bible in Cliff Notes, and that's dramatic because the Bible's big, but the Bible in Cliff Notes is using your selfish awareness to love other people very well. Using your selfishness, not as this terminal illness, but as a tool for your selflessness. It's almost as if you read the Gospels, Jesus comes to us and says, you know how you're pretty sure most of the time how you would like for things to play out? You know how like when you screw up and you say something dumb, you're really hoping that the others who heard it will hear your intent even though they felt your impact? You know how you'd like for other people to talk to you and not just about you, especially when you're not around? You know how that you get that feeling when somebody picks up the slack for you and after them doing so, you don't feel like you owe them one, like you're somehow indebted to them? You know how good it feels to be seen fully, entrusted wholly, as if you matter? You know how warm that experience is when somebody approaches you and you can tell that they've really thought through something because they know that that something will affect you? You know how great it is to be honored, or respected or treated with love regardless of your performance or the materiality that you could provide that could show that you are worthy of it? You know how you love when people do these things for you? Do those things for other people. Give to others what you yourself love receiving. And if you do, you're going to fulfill everything that the scriptures are trying to point you towards. Selfishness is a tool to be used, not a curse to be lifted. We were born as lovers. We can't help but love. But in fear of everything from terrorists coming or not getting a prom date, we have turned the love that was supposed to go outwards 
in on ourselves. We were born as oscillating fans and somehow fear got to us and turned us into shop vac vacuums. Shop vac vacuums are just shop vacuums, the ones that suck. Ticks. Takers. And here's the secret sauce of the Bible is the thing that we are afraid of the most, the thing of giving without being assured that we're going to get, the fear of actually loving selflessly at a cost to ourselves. We find out that in doing so, we're not losing who we are. We're actually returning to who we've always been. Because perhaps there really is no other way of knowing who you actually are than when you learn to minor in consumption and major in provision. When you learn to have this day-to-day awareness of the inner tick within you that wants to focus on the self and you use that intel of what you want to provide for others around you. When you subvert it and you serve We are people who are born with this great capacity for compassion, both to receive it, but also to provide it. And the work of the church, the work that we get to do together, is learn how to set those dials right. Maybe that's even our prayer for this season. It is a God, help me set my dials right. Maybe this is why Jesus calls God a dad, because the dad is always messing with the home thermostat, getting the dials just right and swatting my hand when I insist on turning them the other way. Paul says that to have the mind of Christ is to look up to everybody else so that in doing so, there'll be nobody left to look down upon. May that be true of us. I love you guys so much. The Apostle Paul told the church in Philippi to be of one mind, to have the same love for one another. And that's the call on our lives is to love God and love one another. And every Sunday night when we gather for communion, for taking the bread, taking the cup, we're reminded of that call. We're reminded of a love. The love of a God who came to earth and walked the earth and, pro- and preached and taught and showed us what it meant to set self aside for one another. And on the night before Jesus died, he took bread. He broke that bread and said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took the cup. And after pouring wine into the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me. And that's what we do, friends. When we take the bread and we drink from the cup, we remember that love, the kind of love that we are called to for one another the kind of love that we get to experience right here in this community, our table family. And for that, we are grateful. So at this time, if you take your bread or your cracker and your cup, and you can have water or juice or wine, hear these words as you take that bread, the body of Christ broken for you. And as you dip it into the cup, the blood of Christ shed for you. So together, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom power 
and the glory forever.